we celebrate a risen Christ. We don't celebrate Jesus on the cross. We do celebrate Jesus on the cross, but the tomb is empty. And uh, this, is, this is where it ends. This is where it begins, with an empty tomb. And for me, the power of the truth of the gospel is that God still is transforming lives of many, many millions of people. And Richard is one of those people who's had his life transformed in the last couple of, well, the last year. And so I've asked him to come and share something of his testimony. I trust it's going to encourage you as we reflect on what Easter means about resurrection, life. All of us can enjoy resurrection life because of what Jesus has done. And that's the power of Easter. So Rich, you ready? All right. Well, happy Easter, everyone. Um, this is the first year I'll celebrate Easter as a Christian. And um, basically what I want to talk to you about today is how I became a Christian and what non-Christians believe about Christianity and uh, how far off target they actually are. And because um, a non-Christian, if you talk to them, will tell you that what they think they know, and they're quite confident in that knowledge, but actually their understanding is way off. Um, an example, some examples of this are like, if you ask a non-Christian, how do you become a Christian? They'll say, well, I already am a Christian because I got christened as a child. And that's wrong, as you know. And some of them will say that, you know, you need to be baptized in water to become a Christian. And again, that's wrong. It's important, but your eternal salvation doesn't depend on it. And when you start talking to them about things like the Godhead, they're quite confident in their knowledge. Like, oh yeah, the Father, God, the Son, Jesus, the Spirit, mm, Jesus' is ghost, maybe? Um, anyway, so I'm going to explain to you what a non-Christian believes about Easter. But after I've done that, oh, no, I'm sorry, that'll be after I've told you how I became a Christian. So, um... I wasn't born to a Christian family. My parents aren't Christians, and I had no sort of Christian upbringing at all. So I feel very privileged that I've become a Christian, considering that I didn't have any background to it. Um, when I was at school, you know, we didn't learn about Christianity. Religious studies basically was Islam studies. That's what it should have been called. So I had no opportunity there. Um, uh, thankfully, God has placed people in my life that will, has taught me some stuff, so I did have some sort of basic knowledge, but nothing major. Right. So, so anyway, yeah, that's, um, I grew up as a man of science. You know, I loved geology, biology, paleontology, which, sorry if I'm going to sound a bit you know, looking down on anyone here, but that's the study of evolution and the fossil record, which obviously clashes with the uh, doctrines of Christianity. So, for that reason, I didn't believe anything the Bible, would, that the Bible taught us. Um, I accepted that Jesus was a real person, and I appreciate. I thought he was a really good teacher. And he died for his beliefs, but I didn't believe in those beliefs. And you know, there's no way someone that believes in science can get their head around that Jesus was born to a virgin. It's not biologically possible. You know, Jesus could not have risen from the dead. It's not biologically possible. Okay. And that's where a lot of non-Christians will, that's what they'll think. So anyway, um, so I was quite happy not being a Christian, believe it or not. Uh, but I really had a couple of experiences with Jesus reach out for me earlier in my life. The first of which was when my grandfather passed away. Um, this is quite fresh in my mind because it's the anniversary which is two days ago. Okay. Um, we were all at his bedside in the hospice of St. Francis in Berkhamsted, which is a great charity and wonderful people. And uh, after he passed away, I felt I needed to um, get my thoughts by myself. I found myself being drawn to a room in the, um, in the chapel, oh, sorry, in the hospice. And that's the uh, chapel. So there I am, alone in this chapel, and I feel this overwhelming need to pray, which was really strange. And it sort of knocked me off my feet a little bit because obviously I don't believe in prayer. And I don't believe in God. I don't believe in Jesus. But here I am, basically on my knees praying. And um, I think then that was the first time something really struck in my heart about God. Because I think, but basically I then thought, you know, but 
you know, I was overcome with grief at the time. I just kind of hoped that heaven was a real place because my grandfather deserved to be there, as far as I thought. So I dismissed it. I went back to my scientific ways. Uh, a few years later, I was in Rome, and um, I was at the top of the, uh, this wonderful church at the top of the Spanish Steps with all these great pieces of art in. And there's just this sculpture of Jesus being taken down from the cross, and no difference to any other piece of art in there. But again, I really felt this need to pray. And that confused me because there was no personal grief attached to this. It was just me on holiday looking at some art. And um, my girlfriend I was with at the time had absolutely no interest in religion at all. So I just kind of sneakily had a little prayer and whatever. And... (laughs) And just left it at that. But that one stuck with me more because the thought, as I said, you know, there's no personal grief attached to this. Why would I feel the need to pray when I'm just on holiday in a church somewhere looking at some art? But again, you know, I didn't uh, accept Jesus then, even, but he wouldn't give up, thankfully. So, anyway, my life was pretty good for a few years. And, uh, but then it all came crashing down. And I'm not going to dwell on the causes of that all the effects of that, because Easter's about celebrating. and But basically, I fell into a big battle with depression. And depression's a term that's thrown around a lot, but it is a real disease. And when you really suffer from it, it's bad. Like you, re- you feel so alone, and it's just horrible. You feel you've got nowhere to turn. And you, it's, it is, the, I think, it's the worst non-deadly disease that you can have. Um, yeah, and, that, and I thought the only way to deal with my depression and my problems would be to drink my way through them. Which obviously just made them a lot worse. Yeah. So that went on for a while. <laughs> and, uh, quite a long while. And um, the feeling of loneliness is the worst part about it because I have you know, an amazing family and I'm working on them, becoming them Christians. Yeah. And um, I have some of the best friends in the world. You know, they're, they're so great. And they put up with a lot for me. I must have been a really lousy person to be around at this time. And um, I know Jared's smirking there, man, but thank you very much for standing by me. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but this, is, this went on for a long time. And the initial problems that caused my depression cleared up quickly. But you, you're trapped and you can't get out of, of this illness. And it just engulfs you. And... Uh, so after, after a while, I started to look for other ways out that didn't require me talking to anyone. Because the worst thing about depression is if, someone, if you talk to someone and they don't care, that will just send you over the edge. But, and then I was looking, I started reading, and I found that people who were depressed turned to God. And I thought, well, hmm, I'm not sure I want to do that because I don't believe in God. But you know what, one night I was that bad. I, I thought I'd give it a try because I was at the point, I'm not, you know, thankfully I, I didn't do anything stupid, but I was not far away from looking for a different way out, shall we say. And it's a horrible, horrible thought. So one night, there I am in bed thinking, oh, I'll give this God stuff a go. And I just prayed, I had tears streaming down my face, and I actually became really angry with this God that I didn't even believe in which was a bit strange. But, <laughs> that, why are you doing this to me? You know, what have I, I mean, all right, you know, I don't necessarily, I don't believe in you, but why am I talking to you in the first place? But, you know, I'm not a bad person. I've done things in my life that are no different than anyone else, but, you know, I don't deserve to feel like this. And if you love your children like I'm told you do, you'll do something about it and you'll help me. Now, I'm not sure what I expected to happen at that point, whether my bedroom was going to light up in heavenly light and all these angels were going to come out and sing and this giant, <laughs> this giant finger was going to come down and just be like, ah, like that. Uh, but basically, nothing happened. And I woke up the following day feeling exactly the same. So I did it again that night, and I woke up again the following day, nothing had happened. And so it just reiterated to me that there was no God, I thought, well, you know, if there was one, that was his chance. But he didn't take it. Never mind. Yeah. Um, but anyway, as time went on, I found myself getting better. My depression and my loneliness and my need to drink was clearing up. And I didn't make any connection at the time. 
And I still found myself getting in situations that weren't good for me. But instead of pressing the self-destruct button, I was gaining in strength and generally just getting better. That's the only way I can put it. Until one day, it just went, everything all went. I woke up with a smile on my face and was, you know, it felt good in here. And I was just happy. I've never been that happy for years before then. And um, people say about God's healing, and they tend to restrict it to physical ailments. But I can tell you that God's healing is amazing, and he can can heal your heart and your mind and everything as well. Praise him. (laughs) But anyway, yeah, my life then started picking up. I started, uh, as I said, I got better. I set myself goals. You know, this was in the last year of my university degree. I really started focusing on that. And then a few months later, um, I finished my university degree, which without doubt is the proudest moment of my life, to battle depression and alcohol and all that and still get a degree out of it. it was, I thought it was pretty amazing. So I was proud of that. And if you know me, you know I'm obsessed with football. I'm absolutely obsessed with it. And my beloved Norwich City Football Club had uh, just won their division. So... And I, I know I joke about football, but it does mean quite a lot to me because when I was depressed, my only escapism was going to watch football. It, it allowed me to disconnect from everything for a couple of hours and get lost in this abysmal attempt at playing football by my football team. But, but anyway, um, so the combination of graduating university and Norwich winning League One, so it just, it, I was just content for the first time in a long time. I was just happy. I was really happy. And... Um, my, my brother, who's a geologist, said to me, when I tried to explain this to him, he was just like, oh, Christians always get you when you're down. And I'm like, well, maybe so. It's a, obviously when you're struggling with things, it's a good time to turn to Christ because you'll get extra support. But I wasn't. I, I was buzzing. And, I mean, I was happy. I mean, happier than I've been, as I said, in a long time. And um, a few months after I became a Christian, I got this picture it was just me, just bouncing along the street, all happy, like that. And God was up in heaven, just looking down at me, and he was just laughing at me. And it wasn't horrible laughing. He was just like, you don't even know why you're happy. <laughs> you wait till I come into your life, then, you, then you'll be happy. Uh, and I was like, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I love that picture. That was great. Uh, and then... Obviously, one night I did become a Christian, and, you know, I will try and explain what happened, but it's not going to do it any justice in the world, because it was amazing. (laughs) And uh, basically, I was lying in bed. My bedroom light was still on. I wasn't asleep. I wasn't dreaming or any of that nonsense. I was just laying there. I wasn't really that tired. So I was working out in my head, what should I do? Should I turn my PlayStation on, or should I read, or something like that? And I just had this tremendous presence to surround me and go through me and it was just incredible. I couldn't move, I couldn't breathe. Well, I could breathe, obviously. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't think or nothing. It was, just, it was just incredible. It was this amazing feeling of peace and love. And all I could, the only thing I could think about was, was Jesus. It was just his name was pulsating through my body and it wasn't me thinking it. It was him planting it in there. I know that. And it was just an amazing feeling. And it was just screaming out through me, you know, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And I was just like, okay, that's a bit weird. Um, no, I wasn't, I wasn't at all. I was like, wow, it's amazing. And, and um, that was the first time in my life that I heard God speak to me. Right, he may have reached out for me before and I ignored him, but, you know. And he said to me, you know what, it was me, you know, I gave you the strength to get over your, your problems and, you know, I love you. And it was incredible to hear that someone that you didn't even believe in and someone you would argue in the street with Christians about, say that. And it's like, and I then knew that it was true. He, he had given me the strength to get over my illness and get over my depression. He had, you know, he had put me back on this course and, he was writing for the, the right moment to reveal this to me. And it was just incredible when he did. And that is when I became a Christian and how I became a Christian. Because there's no way I was missing out on that feeling again. <laughs> and it was incredible. You know, 
and you try to explain that to a non-Christian, and you're like, are you sure you didn't imagine it? It's like, no, shut up. <laughs> and it's just, you know, but obviously if you're non-Christian and you haven't experienced the Spirit working in you, it is quite difficult to explain. And you just have to keep trying. But I hunted and hunted through the Bible for a verse that would represent all of that. And I know we were doing Ephesians at the time, and there was loads of stuff in our years. But then I was randomly flicking through the book of Psalms, and I came across this one, which is Psalm 40. And it says, I waited, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. And then it says, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Now, I don't know how many people have seen and scared of me yet, but, you know, we'll work on that one. But the rest of it, it's just, it's just so true. When I read that, I was just like, wow. It was just amazing, because that's exactly what's happened. He heard my cry, he lifted me out of the slimy pit, and he set me on a rock, and he's put a new song in my mouth, and that is just glory to God in everything I do, and everything I do. I always say thanks to God. Right, so that's me. That's how I became a Christian. And so what, do, what did I used to think about Easter as a non-Christian? And what do many non-Christians still think about Easter now? And it's, it's pretty simple, really. They see it as Jesus' execution, which, of course, it was. But that's where it stops. That's it. He's put on the cross and he dies. Um... They don't understand that Jesus was on that cross for us, and out of love for us, to lift us from the fall. That's why he was there. That's why he willingly went to the cross to sacrifice himself. Non-Christians don't believe it's possible to have a personal relationship with Jesus, because they, can't, they haven't experienced it. They don't know what it means when you say that. And when you say it, you mean like, oh, you can feel Jesus in your life and you give your life to him and he directs you. And and they don't know it. And, you know, they have no understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit. And when you say the Holy Spirit is working in you, that is God working inside you. God has chosen to come into your body and reside there. And there's no privilege like that. Nothing can come close to that at all. And, of course, if I don't believe... That Jesus was who he was. And they don't believe in the resurrection either. And, you know, actually, it's a story um, from. I was recently doing an evening course in Hillsong in London. And uh, the teacher was like, you know, if you could have a time machine and go back to any moment in the New Testament, what would it be? And we got the full range of answers. We got Jesus' birth, Jesus' baptism, Pentecost. I really like the person who said that, you know, I wish I'd been there when Mary told Joseph she was pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> that had been an interesting conversation. But it's got to be the resurrection for me. It has to be. When, when the rock has moved away and Jesus has risen from the grave and said, proves he's everything he said he was, it must have just been incredible to see and be. And it's amazing. <laughs> but before that could happen, obviously Jesus had to die. And the cross is so much more than just Jesus' place of execution. It's where heaven meets earth. It's where, you know, Jesus' blood shed on that cross washes away my sin, everyone's sin. My sin, everything I said about God, when I used to, as I say, argue with Christians and make jokes about Christians and all this stuff, it was all just, put, it was all just washed away. Every sin I ever did was just gone. And... It's incredible, you know, there's, there's more to it than that as well. Jesus says that we're going to experience troubles in our lives, and just anyone who says you're not because you're Christian is wrong. Everyone's going to experience trouble. But if you've put your faith in Christ, then the cross will just shine through these dark clouds that will try and engulf you. And it's just, you know, it was, I can't keep saying it enough. From someone who was a non-Christian now as a Christian it's just incredible when you let Christ into your life you haven't, and if you've been a Christian all your life and haven't experienced that then I'm not saying you take it for granted or anything like that. I'm not but it is just pardon the biblical t- pun but it's a revelation it really just changes your life in ways that you could never imagine it was going to
Um, and of course, at the end of it all, you get taken to a place where there is no pain and no suffering and and just just having that faith and that belief. That's all you need to go to a place where there's no pain, no suffering, no tears, no nothing. So just glory and worship and God and love and peace. And I hope, I really hope that when God calls me, Jesus is ready because I'm going full pelt into his arms and I'm a big lump and I'm going to knock him for six, I hope. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, but basically I'm just saying like, this is what non-Christians believe in Easter and it is our job to try and tell them that there's so much more out there. And I know it's hard, and I know it's tough when you talk to non-Christians, but they really need to hear it because they're stuck in their beliefs and they are wrong. And as I said, I'm, you know, I, I don't know what God's got in store for me. I'm really excited to find out, and I can't wait to carry on my journey with God for, until, until I die. And then, but he's given me this story. Incidentally, I forgot to say, I don't really like referring to it as my testimony because there's nothing about me. It's all about God. I had nothing to do with it. That is, is a story that I hope I can use, and I hope when people hear it, they'll they'll be touched by it. And yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> Thanks, uh, Richard. And if you could please just um, find your Bible, and we're going to look at Luke chapter twenty-three. Um, I was just thinking about some of the things that Richard said in his uh, story. I became a Christian when I was 12. I'm 47, so that makes it my 35th time of celebrating Easter. And uh, I don't say that because of any kind of one-upmanship. What I'm trying to say is every time you celebrate Easter, there's something more that God shows you. There's something deeper. There's something different. And... uh, there's so many things you could call a message at Easter, and I, I chose two particular scriptures that I want to share with you, and I, and I originally had the title for this message out of the two scriptures, but I felt in the prayer meeting that I should call this message God's Invitation, because I feel like that's what it is. I think Easter is an invitation to all of us on two levels. One, if you don't know Jesus, it's an invitation to come and kneel at his feet and to find salvation. But for those of you that are Christians, Easter is also an invitation for you to come and walk deeper and open your heart more and allow God do, to do more in your life. And uh, so I really trust, as I share this morning, that whether if you don't know Jesus this morning, that, that you would know Jesus by the time that you leave. And if you do know Jesus, that you would not be content anymore with a mediocre, lukewarm life that just gets on and doesn't experience the fullness of what Christ has for you. I love what Richard said. It's the journey begins at the cross. It's only the start. And there's so much more to enjoy together with God until we go to be with Him. And for me, it's those two levels I'd like to speak to you this morning. And so if you want to, if you have the scripture, it's Luke 23 verse 44. I'm going to read two small portions I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, when the sun, its light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God and said, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all this, and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Well, if it had ended there, it would have been a most devastating story. 
And I got up early this morning, as I normally do, to pray, and I went online, and I just thought I'd have a look what the BBC had to say about Easter. And there was this wonderful article, quite a comprehensive article, on the first page of the, of the webpage, which talked about the passion of Easter. And it explained the historical references of Josephus and other people, uh, historians, Roman historians, that acknowledged that Jesus did live and he was crucified, and they acknowledged all of that and the importance that it was for Christians, etc., 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 but there was not one mention of the resurrection. Not one. The whole article. I found that fascinating because really the resurrection is the offense for so many people. And truly, like Paul said, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we are above all men to be the most pitied. That's what Paul said in Corinthians. It really is about an empty tomb. It really is about the power of the resurrected life in us that comes because of what Christ has done. And so... With that as an introduction, can we go to Luke 24, where we read the, the conclusion of the story, really? And this is the great joy of Easter, isn't it? Verse 12 verses. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bound their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other woman with them who told them these, th these things to the apostles. But the words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. And I guess all of us still marvel <laughs> at what happened on that amazing morning. And it was just so delightful to hear Richard's story of how God has transformed his life. He wasn't looking for God. God was looking for him. Isn't that the wonderful thing? That God intervenes in our lives. He says, I choose you. He says, uh, I was just reflecting this week, you know, we think sometimes that after we saved, we kind of add value to ourselves. But the truth is this, that Jesus loves us perfectly. While we were still sinners, he loved us perfectly. And he doesn't change his love for us just because we are not Christians. He loves us perfectly. And he loved us perfectly while we were still sinners. And on that basis, he died for us. Man, that is incredible. We don't add anything to the cross. The cross is all. And the death and resurrection of Jesus really is the key moment in history, isn't it? I love um, Tim Keller's webpage. He has a little slogan on his webpage. It simply says this, grace changes everything. Isn't that beautiful? The grace of God <laughs> changes everything in your life. And here I love the picture in the first verse that we read of the curtain being torn in two. And for me, that's a powerful picture of what actually happens, that the curtain is torn in two and some things become possible because of what Jesus has done that weren't possible before. And so I'd just like to reflect on some of these things with you this morning. And they're very simple, and we've been studying both Ephesians, Galatians, and now we're looking at James on some of these things I've said before. But I really hope as we meditate this morning on Easter and the power of the resurrection and the power of the empty tomb, that these things will become increasingly real and deep in your life as you walk with Christ. And the first very simple thing is that because the curtain is torn, because the way has been made open, Jesus opens the door to eternal life for every single one of us. I mean, Jesus said some amazing things about himself. He said some uh, radical things. He said some things that were quite hard to swallow. He said, for example, in John 14, verse 6, he said a very simple thing. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. I mean, it's so against the spirit of our age, isn't it? Uh, where there's you know, many ways to God, just find God for yourself, you know, explore. 
God and you'll find him and uh, you know, as long as you're a good person, all this kind of stuff. Jesus, Jesus was so defiant of all that in a very simple way. He simply says about himself, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So what does that mean? Well, uh, I thought Richard did a great job just talking about the perfect sacrifice that Christ is. And because of the sacrifice that Christ is, we are imputed righteousness, we are imputed, um, our, our sin is taken off of us, and God imputes Christ's righteousness to us, and, and he sees that upon, it, upon us. And we can now enjoy a whole new level of relationship with God that we didn't have before. And I want to just explore that a little bit, because I feel like there are a couple of keys that are important. The first is this, is that the cross, once we come to the cross, we experience a complete freedom from guilt. It's a powerful thing. If you've lived your life and uh, you've done anything that's displeased yourself or God, primarily, or your spouse, you will know what an incredible thing it is to live with guilt. I still wake up sometimes uh, in the middle of the night and I'm reminded of things I did when I was a much younger person. And there's this overwhelming sense of guilt that still tries to grab my heart. It's in those moments I have to say, no, it's the blood of Jesus that's covered all those things. And I have to remind myself. I have to come back to the cross. You might think the gospel is a one-off thing. The gospel, you need to preach it to yourself every single day of your life. <laughs> I love what R.T. said to me once. He said, yeah, preach, preach justification from sins. Preach the grace of God, but remind the people that to live in the grace of God is one of the most important, important and difficult things that you have to do as a preacher. There's so many things that want to rob the grace of God from our lives. Guilt. We can have freedom from guilt because of what Jesus has done. And if, if, if that wasn't possible, I couldn't really stand before you this morning as a preacher of the gospel with any kind of integrity. If I didn't know that my guilt had been washed away, I would have to hide like Adam and Eve did. I would have to run. I, I couldn't stand up here. But I know that because of the cross of Christ, the blood of Jesus, the resurrection that we've talked about this morning, that my guilt is taken as far as the east is from the west, and it's removed from me once and for all. I want to remind you of that this morning. God has done that for you. And Psalm 130 is a fantastic verse in verse 4. And we sang it this morning. Our God is a God who saves. There's forgiveness in Christ. There's forgiveness in God. That's what Psalm 130 says. And God so loved us even when we were sinners that he sent his son who entered the world and he lived a perfect life and he identified with us in every single way. And through his death, he bore our sins. He bore our guilt. He bore our shame. He bore our disease that we might be forgiven. And we can live a resurrected life in Christ because of the power of Christ transforming us from the inside out. The other thing I want to remind you of this morning is that I believe one of the primary things that the cross sets us free from is ourselves. You know, in John 8, verse 31, Jesus was talking to some Jewish believers and they, they were talking and um, Jesus said an interesting thing to them. He said, if you hold to my teaching... If you hold to what I say, you will be my disciples and you, know, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Remember, remember that portion. And they have a very inter interesting response because they, they say, well, you know, we, we're children of Abraham. We've never been slaves to anybody. How can you say that um, the truth will set us free? We're not slaves. And Jesus says a remarkable thing. He says, whoever, I tell you the truth, whoever sins is a slave to sin. There can be no freedom when you're a slave. <laughs> and, uh, and Richard said it so well. I mean, the spirit of this age is that we're not slaves. The spirit of this age is actually, uh, I'm a good person. I've never done anything. Uh, I've never murdered anyone. I'm not that kind of person. You know, I, I, deserve, I deserve some things. And yet the Bible, the biblical teaching about sin is quite radical because basically the Bible says that sin is self-centeredness. Sin is proclaiming your independence from God and putting yourself on the throne of your life. That's what the Bible says sin is. That's how it defines it, basically. And so if you look at our language, we are primarily people that are concerned with ourselves. 
So many words, self-gratification, self-esteem, self-justification, all these words. Go and have a look. Uh, I did a, a, a study once in, in the dictionary. There's over 50 words that begin with self. <laughs> Basically, the Bible says that we are consumed with ourselves. We are consumed with our own importance. We are consumed with our own needs. We are consumed to the extent that we have reversed the order of what God has said is really important. God said a very simple thing. Jesus said that all of the law is summed up with these two things. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You know what sin does? It reverses the order. Completely reverses the order. We proclaim ourselves the most important. And when we are feeling generous, we perhaps reach out to our neighbors. And in reality, God is on the periphery of our lives, far removed, the big sugar sugar daddy in heaven, just coming to rescue us when we need something. That's what the Bible says is sin. That's how the Bible defines sin. And so all of us are sinners. (laughs) Every single one of us. I often quote Malcolm Muggeridge, who's uh, 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 an author, and he used this phrase, which I think encapsulates what I'm trying to say so well. He says... uh, he speaks of the dark little dungeon of my own ego. The dark little dungeon. It is a trap to be consumed with yourself, your own ministry, your own needs, your own career, and not have one iota of, of vision outside of yourself for the glory of God or perhaps for the community of believers, for the church, just to be consumed with yourself. It is a dark, dark, dank, smelly little dungeon. That's what the Bible says. And then I love Philippians 3 verse 10, one of my favorite verses where Paul says, I want to know the power of the resurrection. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of the resurrection and share in the fellowships of his sufferings and somehow to attain all of this. That's what Paul says. It's the cry of his heart. I want to know Jesus. And so that's why I say for me, Easter is an invitation. It's an invitation to salvation. It's an invitation to a deeper walk with God. Every time we look to the cross, He's calling us deeper. He's calling us deeper. He's calling us deeper. He's calling us to more. Jesus offers us freedom from fear. Uh, I've often reflected on this, how much of the world is still, we know, you know, we're so scientifically advanced and we have all these kind of technologies that are helpful, but basically people are still riddled with fear. Fear of death, fear of disease. Fear of old age, fear, what was that thing at the turn of the century, YK27, what was it called? I've got it right. All the computers were going to just, Y2K, uh, all, 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 all the computers were going to crash and planes were going to fall out of the air. Do you remember that? <laughs> People are consumed by fear. And what does fear do? It paralyzes you. You can't live when you are filled with fear. I mean, Richard said that when you're depressed and you're filled with fear, you just want to die. Well, Jesus comes to set us free from fear. And the power of the cross sets us free from fear, radically transforms us. And uh, we looked at Ephesians, Ephesians 1.22. says, Christ has died and has risen, has been exalted to the right hand of the Father, and everything has been put on his feet. That includes the fears that you carry. That includes your anxieties. That includes everything. All things are under his feet. I think we need to bring out of our, our fears out of the closet, out of the cupboard, admit them, and just say, God, I submit those fears to the shadow of the cross, and I trust the shadow of the cross to powerfully transform my life. I love this secondly or thirdly or whatever it is, I can't remember now. But uh, Jesus also opens the door, makes the way open for the presence of God in our lives in an amazing way. I love Hebrews 8. Hebrews 8, 6 says that the ministry that Jesus has, he has received, is far superior to the old covenant. And it's made on better promises. Isn't that wonderful? The ministry of the new, some new mediation through Jesus which is founded on better promises. And there's a fullness in our relationship that Jesus has opened the door to. And I want to challenge some of you. I really want to, I've known some of you for a long time. I think many of us are quite, quite happy to be mediocre Christians, earning our keep, loving our children, having a career, just getting on, going through life, quite happily to be happily backslidden. 
and mediocre. And I believe the challenge of God to every single one of us is to go deeper. I do. I, I don't say that in any sense of superiority. I, I want to be honest with you. The last three years of, my, of, the, of, of our lives have been the darkest of our lives. Helen and I. They have been so dark. And yet God brings us out of the darkness into the light. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't say this to you to, to pretend that I'm better than anyone else. I know what God is saying to me. And God's call on my heart and my life, I believe it's the same for all of us. He's calling us deeper. He's calling us to intimacy. He's calling us to more. He's calling us to not just be satisfied for the way things are. He's calling us to walk by the Spirit. Yeah? So I didn't want to speak on behalf of Helen. Perhaps, you know, you can speak to her about if it's been a dark time for her. But it's certainly been a dark time for me in some ways. Yeah? Better promises. And that's why, that's why the book of Hebrews says this in, in chapter 10, verse 19. It says this. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, the curtain that's been torn, through the curtain, that is, His body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. I'm saying to you that's God's invitation this Easter. Draw near in full assurance of faith. Come from the outer part into the inner court. Let your heart be soft again to God. Don't be happy to be a backslidden, lukewarm Christian. As long as I can go on holiday three times a year and pay for my kids' education, and God loves me, He understands. Come on, guys, ladies, gentlemen, there's so much more for us. I was reflecting on John chapter 4 this week. You know, John chapter 4 is that amazing story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And um, Jesus says, they're talking about worship. And Jesus says this to her, he says, the kind of worship that I'm looking for is those that will worship in spirit and truth. And you know what the Greek word is there? Proskuno, which means to come forward and to kiss. That's the kind of worshipers that Jesus is seeking. Not those that say things with their lips and whose hearts are far from him, but those who come forward and they kiss. We've had a night away to celebrate Helen's birthday. There's a wonderful intimacy in kissing, isn't there? I mean, that's what marriage is all about. Come on, guys. There's an intimacy, and it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's something that you celebrate and you rekindle re, uh, every so often. I feel like I've had, um, had a holiday, man. It's one night away. Guys, take your wife away for one night and you'll be refreshed. Yeah. <laughs> to come forward and to kiss. This Easter, God's calling every one of us to come forward and to kiss, not be satisfied with mediocrity anymore. Lukewarmness. So many more things I could say, and I don't want to go for too long. I just want to say these things as passing, and then I want to land on one point at the end. Jesus opens the door for healing. The curtain has made the way open for healing. Isaiah 53, verse 5. By his stripes we are healed. We're going to have a time of ministry afterwards. John and some of the guys felt that they'd like to pray for people, and I think it's brilliant. And so we're going to have a time just now where we're going to pray for people. And I love what Richard said. God heals our hearts as well as our bodies, as well as everything. And if you need prayer, we're going to have a time of ministry when we break bread over on that side there, and we're going to pray. Trust that you'll be ministered to, that the power of the Holy Spirit would come and minister to you. I love the other thing that the, the, the torn curtain means. The torn curtain means that a, a way has been made for the Holy Spirit to come. Uh, we, we looked at that a couple of months ago where, where Jesus says, uh, you won't, I won't leave you as orphans, John chapter 14. I won't leave you as orphans, but I will send another counselor, someone perfectly like me, who will walk along, alongside you and be all that I am to you right now. This counselor, this Holy Spirit, I will live with you. He will be all of that to you. Not possible if the curtain, was, if the curtain, curtain hadn't been torn. And it has been torn, and the Holy Spirit dwells amongst us. And we live in the reality of that. Jesus opened the door to our inheritance. We looked at Ephesians. What is our inheritance? Our inheritance, some of these things, that we are, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing that is in Christ. That's part of our inheritance. He chose us before the creation of the world to be his sons. 
be blameless in his sight. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons. I'm just reading Ephesians chapter 1. We have redemption through his blood. We have forgiveness of sins. It's part of our inheritance. We are chosen for the praise of his glory. Isn't that a wonderful part of our inheritance? And so I want to end with this. Can you go with me, please, to Revelation? Book of Revelation, chapter 3. And this is kind of where I felt God speak to me in the prayer meeting before. I want to make it quite clear as I read the scripture, this is not about salvation. This is not about losing your salvation. You know, so many people read this portion and say, you see, God wants to spit people out of his mouth. Uh, you know, if, you, if you're not, if you do the wrong stuff, God is going to spit you out of his mouth. It's not talking about that. The, the context here is a context of wholeheartedness. Wholeheartedness. It's an invitation from God. And what does it say? In Revelation 3 verse 14, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's crea- creation. I know your deeds. You are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. But you don't realize you're wretched, you're poor, poor you're pitiful, you're blind, you're naked. And I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and clothes white to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and put salve on your eyes so you can see those whom I love I rebuke and discipline so be earnest and repent here I am I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come in and eat with him and he with me. See, for me, this is the invitation of God. That is, I love the language of the gospel. It's always invitational. It's always God extending himself and saying, I invite you to come deeper with me. It's never twisting your arm. It's never beating you with a whip. It's saying, here's the cross. Come to the cross and find peace. Once you've come to the cross and found peace, he's inviting you deeper. He's saying, I want to walk with you. Just as Adam and Eve walked with me in the garden, I want to walk with you. The choice, come and walk with me. I want to walk with you. But admit your need of me. And there's a great adventure. There's a walk by the Spirit. I want to encourage you this Easter, and wherever you feel you are with God, that you come deeper. (laughs) If you don't know Jesus, I want to encourage you to pray with someone right now, as we break bread, that you might know salvation. The Bible says all that you need to do is not, you do not have to live a good life. The Bible says all you have to do is believe that Jesus died for your sins and you are saved. I want to say to you, if you do that, and you start to walk by the Spirit, you will automatically start to live a good life. And you will automatically start to do what pleases Jesus because you love Him. And He will do it by the Spirit. You don't have to try hard it'll start to happen. You don't have to beat yourself up. You don't have to take 50 courses on how to love your wife because actually the Holy Spirit will show you how to love your wife if you have a soft heart and open ears. Amen. This is a life of the Spirit. (laughs) This is walking by the Spirit. You know, I've been thinking of this. How many people blame their backsliddenness on the church? Oh, the church is not doing this. If the church was doing that, I would be a better person. My friend, my dear friend, you walk with Jesus with all of your heart, and he will, you seek the kingdom with all of your heart, he will add all these things to you. It's not, the church is not going to, if the church runs this program or runs the program, in the end of the day, it doesn't change much. I believe we preach the word with all of our hearts. We believe the gospel. We preach the gospel. You know what? My walk is my business. Helen's walk is Helen's business. Steve's walk is Steve's business. I can't walk any other walk except my walk. Nor can you. I think it's time for the church to grow up into the fullness of the head, which is Christ. And can I call you this morning? as best as I'm doing, to the cross. And we're going to read Luke chapter 22, and we're going to break bread together. If you don't know Jesus, I want to encourage you to pray with someone. If you do know Jesus, I want to encourage you to come deeper on this wonderful journey with him.
Verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had been sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they said. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I might eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished, and make preparations there. And they left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and he said, Take this and divide it amongst you. Well, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. And the hand of him is going to betray me is with mine at the table. And the Son of Man will go as has been de- decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. And they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Jesus, we want to thank you for these symbols of your body and your blood. I thank you, Lord, that you instructed us to remember you when we break bread and drink wine. That we were to remember forever what you did upon the cross. And so, Lord, we come gratefully this morning as your sons. We come with joy in our hearts. We come celebrating an empty tomb. We come celebrating an empty cross. We come saying thank you for what you did. And God, we just want to take a moment to reflect. We want to take a moment to just reflect on the power of your gospel that transforms lives. We, we rejoice with Richard. We rejoice with every single person in this place that has a story of your intervention in their lives, of you radically saving them, that their destiny is now completely different because of the cross. And Jesus, we hear your words calling us deeper, calling us into more. And Lord, I want to say for myself, I I don't want to be satisfied with mediocrity. I don't want to be satisfied with just a lukewarm life. I want to experience the fullness of what you have for me. And I ask, Lord, that this adventure, that we all walk with you, would become increasingly joyful, increasingly adventurous, increasingly wonderful. And I trust you for that in Jesus' name.